You're listening to Challenger Chats, a podcast centered around founders, business leaders, and the creators of today's hottest challenger brands, where we look to understand what makes them tick, get a sense of the obstacles they've faced and how they've overcome them, hear about the growing pains of brand building and what they love and hate about today's promiscuous consumer. I'm Adam Spencer, and for our first episode, I'm speaking to Charlie Jilks, co-founder of Inception Group. Recorded live in Inception's head office, we talk about Charlie's background and entrepreneurial journey, starting off at the age of three, selling hand-drawn pictures to his neighbours, and how he hustled his way to become one of London's leading late-night operators. He gives us his views on what it's really like working with a co-founder, funding the business, managing growth, and fitting out his first site on a shoestring budget, building unique venues that are themed, and how to keep these themes fresh and relevant to an evolving consumer, and his thoughts on the future of a late-night sector that has been battered by COVID trading restrictions. It's a fascinating conversation with an engaging and inspiring individual, and I hope you enjoy it. So it's without further ado that I'd like to introduce our very first guest, Charlie Jilks. Charlie is the co-founder of Inception Group, an award-winning operator of some of London's best eating and drinking out venues, and a true pioneer of experiential hospitality. He's a creative mind behind not one, but five immersive hospitality brands, including Mr. Fogg's, Bunga Bunga, Bart's, Maggie's, and my personal favorite, Cahoots. And he's been a mover and shaker in London's bar scene for well over a decade. So let's get straight to it. Charlie, welcome. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me on. No worries. So you've been profiled by the New York Times, Forbes magazine, GQ, the EasyJet in-flight mag, and you've commentated regularly on Sky News and BBC. So there'll be listeners out there who will have heard you speak, will have read a little about your business, and may have visited uh, one or two of your venues. But for those that haven't, can you please tell us a little bit about Inception Group? Inception Group is a collection of 11 venues. We're based only in London at the moment. And as you've been through, we have five brands. Um, Our mission statement is to create unique and memorable experiences. And I think our venues do stand out for their unique interiors and different themes. Um, We've got one nightclub, um, Bunga Bunga, which is more of a um, kind of pizzeria with live entertainment. Mr. Foggs, based on the fictional character Phileas Foggs. And Phileas Fogg, and um, we have a collection of of bars around that theme, six of them in total. Cahoots, 1940s underground tube station themed uh, venue, which now has a ticket hall and a train station above it too. Uh, Bart's, which was very much the sort of the first speakeasy in London. So, so those are the those are the brands, and um, you know we've 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 grown slowly over over the last 10, 11 years, and have sort of created different twists on each of those themes over time. So before we kind of dig into um, the concepts a little bit more, let's rewind a little and talk about your your early days and the origins of your kind of entrepreneurial journey. Tell me a bit about what your family life was like growing up. Uh, was the desire to be an entrepreneur always there or did it kind of you know, flourish over time? I don't come from a background of entrepreneurs. My uh, my father's a doctor. Typically, my, my family in the past have been sort of in professional career paths um, probably slightly risk averse, but I think you know from from an early age I was always thinking about business ideas. I was at home, I think the age of two or three, kind of knocking on the doors of my poor neighbours, trying to sell them terrible pictures that I'd drawn. And I did my first event actually when I was thirteen. I ran up, rang up a nightclub, and said I want to do a party for um, fellow thirteen-year-olds and. Um, they had to turn off the cigarette machines and they had to <laughs> serve fruit juice. And actually, when they first called me back, they asked for Mrs. Jilks because my voice hadn't broken at the time. Um, so I was always thinking about ideas and really started doing more uh, once I'd left school uh, in a gap year and started running club nights across London. And, you know, that's really where my love of putting on events started. And that was a precursor to setting up our own venues. And then you, uh, you, you went to university in, in Edinburgh? Yeah, went up to Edinburgh. Um, I think my dad is, is, is someone from a sort of medical background, very much values quite rightly the importance of a degree. And so I used to do, for four years, I used to do three days a week at Edinburgh and four days a week in London. So I carried on the business down here. Uh, we actually opened our first venue in my third year. Um, and yeah, it was pretty full on. I remember actually that last year of university doing my finals running the business which was busier than ever in London it was it was it was hectic but actually I think actually when you're really busy you become really efficient with time you know it's actually 
I find, you know, still that those days when I've only got two hours in the office, I probably in those two hours sometimes can achieve more than I achieve mm. in a whole day where I've no, I've got that all that space in front of me. So, yeah, it was it was, it was hectic, but it was a challenge, and I enjoyed it. And um, you know, literally, it was a kind of it was a weekly commute. Sort of, you know, I was always on that train down uh, to London on a sort of Wednesday morning, and then back up on a Sunday for four years. So I I feel like I missed out maybe on the full university experience, but I'm glad I got half an experience rather than none at all. Yeah. And at the time, did you see that more as a as a nice lifestyle business? You're obviously a young guy, you know, organising parties. Was that part of your thinking or did you always have the sense that this could become something a bit bigger? I think, no, at the time we were probably opportunistic. We were trying to scratch our, our own itch. I was trying to put on um, events that I thought I would enjoy going to myself and then open a club. Uh, we did a joint venture before Inception Group was 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 formed. We opened a club called Kits on, on Sloan Square in London. We heard about this hotel being developed and I contacted the hotel owners who said, no, we're in the business of sleep. We're not at all interested in, in doing anything with you, you know, in our basement, which was going to be housekeeper's uh, storage. And we convinced yeah. them eventually, actually, you know, it had an old existing license and this would be a great spot for a nightclub and they were mad not to. And I think the reason we really wanted to kind of have our own place is we, we were increasingly uh, running events throughout London and club nights and got frustrated because the club owners kept on changing the goalposts and actually we wanted to have that control. But I don't think we sort of set out thinking we want to make this a, a big London business with 11 plus sites. I think it was one step at a time and we kept on having these ideas for concepts and and kind of wanted to make them a reality really. Mm. So it was, I think it was, a, it was, it was great. You know, it was a great sort of buzz and it still is about having an idea and seeing it come to fruition. Yeah. And, w- and when you say we, is this you and your business partner, Duncan? Yeah. So Duncan and I um, have been business partners for coming up to 20 years now, um, <laughs> believe it or not, which sounds extraordinary saying that. Initially I started off on my own doing nights and he was doing nights in London as well. And it was a funny story actually that there was a week before Christmas um, and I had booked this club through the um, through the owner and on, on a Wednesday. I was running the regular Tuesday there. He was running the Thursday and then we knew everywhere would be busy the week before Christmas. Yeah. So I booked it through the uh, through the owner and he booked it through the manager and they hadn't realised that they're double booked. And rather than choosing between us, um, they said, you guys have got to kind of work together. And um, I think we realised that we were, we were kind of a good team. And Duncan brought a lot of practicality that perhaps weren't my strong points. <laughs> and so we started doing more and more nights together. And, 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 and that's how our partnership started. And then from there, we made the decision to... Um, to do to do kits, which was our sort of joint venture with these hotel owners, and then um, to sign our first lease um, back in 2009, I believe. Yeah, no, 2008. Sorry, we signed it in 2008 around November, which is Bart's our speakeasy bar, and that opened in February 2009. So that was our first. That was the start of Inception Group. Really. Yeah. Okay. So Duncan bought the practicality. What did what did you try to bring to the party? I think now we're much more of a uh, you, you know, you know, we, we overlap a lot more. I think, you know, I think initially I was probably more marketing, creativity and that sort of side of the business. And Duncan was more sort of operational, you know, financial. But I think, you know, these days, you know, he has some of the best ideas and probably I have a better ability back uh, now than I did back then to um, to dig into accounts and and to, to work my way around the PL. Um, so I think, you know, we, we, there is sort of the Venn diagram is overlaps quite a bit. I think mm-hmm. we, 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 we have a skill set that, that works well, um, but that's certainly how we divided things up probably at the beginning. I was probably more thinking about things that were customer facing, more of those sort of you know, crazy marketing ideas. And, and he was thinking more about actually, how does this make commercial sense as a yeah. business and thinking operationally. Um, you know, it's interesting, I think, I describe it that, you know, when we're looking at a new venue, I'm sort of looking at the front of a bar mm-hmm. thinking, you know, how are we going to do the, the framing on that wooden panelling? How are we going to yeah. light the front of that bar lip? And are we going to use marble or copper for our, for our bar top? Yeah. And he's there thinking, where are the tool points? Where's the power? Where's the stainless <laughs> steel dispense rail? Um, he's thinking about how does this thing work? And I'm probably thinking about how does this thing look? And that's probably quite a good analogy for our partnership. You guys have been working quite closely together for 20 years. Um, 
And in that time, um, you know, I'm sure you agree on lots of things. I'm sure you agree, disagree on some things as well. How do you go about making sure that you know, your ideas are fresh and you, know, you don't end up just relying on one another for ideas? Do you, do you look to outside support or do you not need to? I think the good thing is quite a lot of ideas have been a combination of, of, of things. And you know, when, I, when I look at, back at Bart's, our first bar, I probably had a very traditional, more classic view of it to, to be more of the sort of 1920s place. And, mm. and Duncan, you know, I think wanted to make, you know, he had this idea of the fancy dress box going in there and the, the kind of neon above the door and we got this getting this graffiti artist. And so the combination sort of created something very unique and ditto with cahoots. I had this idea of doing a sort of underground bar because the space was an underground space. And he had this idea of doing something 1940s. And in the end, we did a 1940s underground pub, um, <laughs> which is what Cahoots is. And yeah. I think, um, you know, often two, good, two ideas are the, you know, the inception, as it were, for, for one, you know, that together works well. Um, we've forged a, a good partnership over all these years. I think, you know, we were very much uh, business partners before friends um, that way around. Yeah. And... Um, I think, you know, usually we have mutual respect that if he feels very strongly about something, you know, I listen and and I think if I do, he listens too. And I think usually we meet, you know, somewhere in the middle. Let's go back to Bart's then. Um, it's 2011. Um, you're trying to find the funds to open it. How did you go about funding funding that first site and the, and the first couple of sites? Well, I wish all the sites that we opened were on um, the sort of budgets that Bart's was opened on. I mean, it was... We did the whole thing for £25,000. And actually, I remember we we signed the lease and it was this old, it used to be a squash court and it was a residence bar within the uh, Chelsea Cloisters building um, on Sloan Avenue. And um, we we kind of got in touch with our lawyer and we said, well, you know, know, it was a friend of Duncan's dad, I think. And I think we're still with David uh, Salomon, who's still our solicitor. And, you know, I think we were a bit of a pain initially to him. But he said, look, there's been a mistake here. You've you've written uh, £10,000 um, rent uh, a year you mean a month and we said no no it, it is it is it is a year. zero off that number yeah no so yeah so it was it was, it was a good deal but you know we had to um, personally guarantee uh, the the lease uh, which was a massive risk and I think we signed this bar which had no on street presence at all you know the last three people who had run it had all gone bust um, it was February 2009 a time where the world was collapsing and you know there was a those famous scenes outside uh, Lehman Brothers. And yeah. um, so, you know, on paper, at a time when 50 bars and pubs a week were closing London, this really wasn't the time to be opening um, a, a business which was completely off the beaten track. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we saved money from our, our, our sort of other ventures and club nights and things, and we did the whole thing on £25,000. We actually won an award in our first year for, for there was a very random award. It was... I think it was part of Class Magazine, but it was mm. for the best refurbishment under £50,000, which um, we... There can't be too many up for that award. No, I think it was literally just us. But um, So the, the idea is we'd seen it in London, this idea of a speakeasy. We'd seen this sort of secret bar idea. And it's funny, a lot of the things I talk about now with Bart seem very generic, but at the time they were pretty new. It was sort of, it was as Twitter was taking off. Mm. Um, so there's, there was a sort of buzz about, like, have you found this place? And... You know, there was there was these great reviews of people turning up, kind of walking into the kitchens because we never gave the address away. It was kind of you know, it was our tagline was London's worst kept secret. But you know, people coming to review it and ending up in in kind of neighbouring restaurants' kitchens. We did it all, as I said, just from car boot sales and flea markets, and we bought teapots um, from the car boot sales to serve cocktails in and teacups. And again, people weren't doing that at the time, and had kind of the ex- ex- exposed kind of Gerard Souderon style filament light bulbs hanging which again was a very new look and it was fun and you know I remember one of the reviews was you know I, I turned up wanting to hate this place and I saw the fancy dress trunk and an hour later I was dressed as a penguin and you know and, and, and the fancy dress box was a great icebreaker if you're a real regular you got given a, a tankard above the bar rather than the membership that we sold you you, you got given a like a hotel key card mm. so you kind of let yourself in and, and people people love that. They kind of love that kind of sense of ownership of being able to kind of let themselves in. And it became, Bart's became this real community sort of hub. Mm. And I remember actually our first Christmas, very sadly, one of our, one of our um, kind of regulars 
was run over over in the city after his Christmas party, tragically killed. And I remember going to the funeral and looking round, and everyone sitting in that church was a Bart's regular. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was sort of a lovely moment because it you know, made you realise how much of a kind of community it had become. Yeah. Um, and it was really, you know, it was great. People used to turn up to Bart's on their own um, and they just knew, you know, they'd have a nice long chat to the bartender, they'd have a nice long chat to the other regulars. Um, and it created a, you know, a really sort of loyal, regular following. And, you know, I've had some of the, the best nights uh, ever in, in, in that bar and um, will always have a very special place for us. You opened Bart's, uh, how long was it until you, you opened your second venue? So we um, opened Maggie's a year later. I mean, we did, you know, I look back on it and I think, wow, well, you know, 2009 Bart's, 2010 Maggie's, 2011 Bunga Bunga. Mm. You know, it was pretty, it was pretty speedy and each one sort of funded the next. Um, and Maggie's was a 1980s nightclub, um, Rubik's Cube table, still till COVID was going incredibly strong. Um, we only play 1980s music. It's uh, named after... Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. I think we were trying to think of names and um, everyone was either as famous in the 90s or noughties as they were in the 80s or they were well known at the early part of the 80s or the, or the late. Um, and Thatcher was Prime Minister 79 to 90. And so she just encapsulated that whole decade and she seemed like the perfect person to, in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way to name the club after. <laughs> so that opened then and then and then yeah, a year later we opened Bunga Bunga and Batsey which sort of pizzeria with live entertainment and in an old pub site, and it's been going going strong ever since. You've never taken on outside equity investment. We haven't. No, we've we've got bank debt. Um, we grew completely organically through retained profits for you know first nearly eight and a half years really, mm-hmm. um, and then we took some some bank debt to fund to want to do multiple projects in one year, but no no investment today. We'll shake things up a little bit, and uh, that's the bell for our quick fire round. Um, so the format for this is I'm going to throw a few short, sharp questions at you, Charlie, and you're going to throw back some short, sharp answers. Ready to mix it up? Yep. Cool. Okay. 1 a.m. nightcap or 6 a.m. workout? Definitely a 1 a.m. nightcap. <laughs> detail or big picture strategy? Definitely detail, and I'd say Duncan is more big picture, so that works well. Cats or dogs? Dogs and my dog uh, Bertie is with me right now, um, and so if you hear a bark, um, that is neither Adam nor myself. <laughs> He's been a very good boy so far. Yeah. Um, when you're in Bunga Bunga, what's uh, your go-to karaoke song? Always Angels, Robbie Williams. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> my poor wife Annie has had to sit through many yeah. a rendition, and actually at the moment we've got, um, you know, because of COVID, we've got shower cubicles in there, so it's nice. called karaoke. People singing in the shower. And uh, people have been loving that. Social media, friend or foe? I think both. I think, you know, I know you're asking me to give one answer, but I think both. I think, <laughs> I think on, a, on, a, on a business level, I think it's great. Um, you, know, it's, you know, people look at social media like they used to read magazines. And they're not, I mean, occasionally my mum will uh, give, send me a clipping in the post with a post-it note on. But that's rarely how we share information now. It's, yeah. it's digitally shared. And I think, um, you know, it's a great way. It's been a great way for us to get the word out about our venues, introduce our businesses to a new audience, um, and you know that has been really, really, you know, a great tool for us. I think on a personal level, I, th- I think it does come with dangers. I think people get very addicted to social media. I think there is this kind of everyone trying to outdo each other uh, with their Instagram feed, and you know, I do sometimes feel slightly despairing when you see a whole family sitting around for a meal and staring at their phones and yeah. you know I think I'm glad you know that, that, that we had slightly you know more of the kind of Nokia style things when I was at university and we'd all go to the pub and chat <laughs> rather than looking at our phone at all so I think sometimes there can be an over obsession about getting the right uh, picture when actually mm. you know you should just be enjoying the moment rather than thinking won't it be brilliant for Instagram so you need to get the right balance yeah, couldn't agree more, but yeah, you're right. That was two answers, but I'll, I'll give you a free pass as okay. it's our, our first guest. Peloton or push bike? Peloton. Uh, yeah, I love my Peloton. Got that about a year ago. And especially during lockdown, it was a godsend. I can imagine. Favourite restaurant? I think it has to be the River Cafe. And it is just, I mean, I just, it's just phenomenal. You, you know, the, the, the food there is amazing. The setting 
um, sitting outside. Um, you know, I just love the fact it's not overcomplicated. The staff are phenomenal. Um, you know, it's a rare treat to go there because um, you do need to sort of sell a kidney to to to, to pay the bill. But I've never I've never left not having had a fantastic time. I think it's consistently. I think it's been going for thirty plus years now, mm. and it's just consistently always been phenomenal. Yeah, well, let's hope another 30 years. And finally, your favourite bar. And you can't say one of your own. Dukes um, for a martini. Alessandro, uh, the the bar head barman there, is amazing. And um, it was actually one of the things I craved most during lockdown was a a, a gin martini uh, with a twist made by Alessandro. And I went, uh, as soon as it opened, I went back. Uh, And they'll only ever serve you two. That's the rule. So you you, you can't enjoy more. It's where... um, it's where Ian Fleming used to drink, and it's why Bond okay. drinks martinis in, 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 in the Bond uh, yeah. books and Natalie films. Well, thank you for that. We will move on now to talking about um, uh, a bit about branding and brands. Mm. Obviously, Inception Group is um, is a multi-brand business, and I just want to kind of dig into why you ended up going down the, the multiple brand route instead of the cookie-cutter single-brand approach that many others back in the kind of 2010s were, were adopting? If I'm honest, I don't think we started with a plan. I think we just had some concepts that we really wanted to do. And, you know, these ideas. And again, you know, I think the, I think the, the great US restaurateur Danny Meyer says that creating a concept is like writing music. The notes are predetermined, but the order you put them in creates something truly unique. And the idea of, uh, of Bunga Bunga, yes, we didn't invent pizzeria we didn't invent the idea of karaoke or live entertainment but the way we created the decal with the pizzeria with the karaoke and with the live entertainment created something really unique and so it was you know we would initially with the with the sort of the kind of bar that we'd want to go to ourselves um, the kind of club we'd want to go to ourselves uh, similar to the restaurant and, and I remember there was a great restaurant in Beach and Place called Pizza Pomodoro and I remember someone rang me and they said, I'm thinking of going there for a celebration. Uh, what's it like? And I said, food is terrible. The service is terrible, but definitely go. You have an amazing night. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was true. It just really focused on atmosphere and fun. And there weren't that many places like that. It was kind of a one-stop shop that you could go to for your whole evening. But I think I think for us, you know, latterly, um, you know, we've, we've been more, you know, focused on, on a strategy especially now that we have six Mr. Fogg's venues. And I think, you know, we, we don't want to create this cookie cutter um, approach. I think increasingly we are in competition with what people are doing at home. And, you know, if you want to get people out of their house uh, into your venue, you don't want to create something, you know, which which is, you know, cookie cutter, which is, you know, they could go to the same one uh, in, in any city in the UK or, around London, I think we've always really tried to create the point of difference, you know, the single overarching narrative. So Mr. Fox, you know, has Phileas front and centre um, in mind, um, but each one is different and it's a collection, it's not a chain. So you go to the gin parlour, you know, actually, I've really enjoyed that. Let's go to his society of exploration um, or let's go to his residence in Mayfair or um, or, or, or the one named after his wife, Mrs. Fox in, in the city. And, and I think, you know, each one has a has a unique take um, and I think that keeps a level of interest and intrigue about what we do and and also it gives us more versatility when we're thinking about growing you know we, we, we're not looking for um, a 3,000 square foot square room and um, we can operate in in old basement wine bars in a glass box but also in a three-story pub site and you know I think we've started opening some venues which are actually very close to each other and that's enabled us to target different demographics locally to each other and I think that's really important you know I mean our mantra very much is you know we hope that by going to Mr Fogg's it encourages you to visit another one rather than I think a cookie cutter chain once you've been once you've 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 done it all and I and I think especially with delivery now I think a lot of the sort of fast casual dining brands um actually they're not really giving consumers an incentive to visit um you know that you know that they they would rather just stay in their living room uh, watching Netflix and enjoy their product via delivery than actually going there. So you've really got to fight hard to get people out of the house to want to visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, you, you, you talked just then about um, you know, creating uh, a bar club experience that you would want to go to yourselves. And um, uh, and presumably in the early days, you know, the likes of Bart's, Maggie's, mm-hmm. Fox, Fox Residence, 
yourself and Duncan were the target customer. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you still see yourself as target customers or? Yeah, I think probably for you know certainly for the Mr. Fox brand and cahoots. I think if I'm honest. You know, now with two small children, um, days of being able to go to a nightclub. <laughs> Uh, a slightly more limited but it was certainly the club I wanted to go to when I was younger but that's why I think we're constantly having to um, you know talk to our team and you know so many of the good ideas you know are no longer from Duncan and I they're from our from our team and and make sure that actually is this does this make sense to you and is this relevant to you and a lot of our guys in you know head office are our you know our younger and our target market for some of the younger brands but I think definitely you know when we open a Mr. Fogg's uh, when we open a cahoots, we are the target market. Um, and and I think Bunga Bunga to a degree, probably less so Maggie's. And, and, but that's why we're constantly asking people's opinion. And, and actually, um, you know, we, when we opened that venue uh, 10 years ago, you know, we started playing 80s music and it was, you know, been you know, you know, 20 years um, since the 80s had ended. Um, and 30 years now on, you know, people still wanting 80s music and it's mm. amazing. We thought that might have to evolve, but it hasn't at all. And it's more been more popular than ever. The longevity is unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, like 80s no, music. it really yeah. is. Can't imagine uh, creating a noughties nightclub in 20 years time. No, I, the, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Maybe but, five in S Club 7, but. <laughs> I'm not sure Johnson's will be opening anytime soon. <laughs> so um, let's talk a bit more about, about themes and um, hospitality venues um, that have been built around a theme um, mm. over the years of, uh, you know, quite regularly have the accusation thrown at them that they have a short shelf life, that they're mm-hmm. fads, and what's deemed to be cool and relevant in one particular year um, just won't be in five to ten years' time. So I'd like to put to you that obviously you've built a business based on theme concepts. What would you say to those who might say that the shelf life for Inception is short? Well, I think we've proven, you know, already that it's not. And I think it's, you know, it's a very, we always talk about the, the sort of tightrope and this balancing act between being too Disney or not. And I think it's to, to, to ensure that we're not faddy. It's about really pursuing the attention to detail and, and you know, and fully believing in the concept and really going above and beyond. I think all of our venues too, they're very classic. You know, Mr. Fogg is based around a Victorian fictional explorer and the venues are made to look like um, the places he inhabits. And, you know, they, they look like they've been standing there since the Victorian period. Um, and they don't look like a, a sort of cheap, Disney knockoff of it. Um, so I think, you know, the classic nature, again, Bunga Bunga, fairly classic kind of pizzeria, yes, with quirky entertainment. But, you know, the idea of live entertainment has, has been going over, you know, for, for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Maggie's is literally a time capsule from the 80s. We always joke and, you know, if it was sort of archaeologists uh, dug it up in years to come. You know, they would, yeah. we hope, genuinely believe that this was a genuine, uh, you know, club from that period so I think it's really embracing the theme um, you know not being half-hearted with anything that you do mm-hmm. and ensuring that the, the decor and everything is is, is, is is really well thought through uh, and that you have something that has, is going to have that kind of longevity yeah you, you mentioned Bunker Bunker there and obviously people of a certain age will remember the um, uh, the origins of the phrase Bunga Bunga uh, mm. from uh, former Italian PM uh, Mr Berlusconi and his infamous Bunga Bunga parties. But when do you think you'll run out of customers that actually know the context of Bunga Bunga? Or does it does it actually matter? If they um, it really isn't important to us. I think we've distanced ourselves increasingly over the years. I mean, the origin of that, we had the whole concept of uh, Bunga Bunga, you know, this, this, this sort of live entertainment pizzeria, um, one-stop shop you could come to for your whole evening. And we're desperately trying to think of a name actually and every kind of Italian name just sounded like kind of a cliche Italian restaurant um, and we then you know we settled on Mamma Mia's but then we thought actually we might get sued by ABBA <laughs> so um, we were reading about you know this bunga bunga I was, you know, I was reading about this whole Berlusconi I was like actually that is a you know r- you know ridiculous name and actually when we applied for our license um, our solicitor said actually do you mind if we just apply for it as bunga rather than both mm-hmm. um, but you know, we've got some great stories about that. You know, there was an Italian businessman who registered the trademark just before us because Berlusconi came on TV saying, you know, that he was going to register the trademark. So some Italian thought he would do it. We ended up having to pay a small fortune in order to get that. Um, but I think, look, I think actually the sort of the origins of Silvio Berlusconi is something we don't really talk about 
so much anymore. So I'm very much a believer that a place makes a name rather than a name making a place. It's a silly name, but whether you understand the relevance or not, it's really neither here nor there. I want to touch on um, experiential and look into kind of the meaning of the word. Obviously, it's a word that's being used uh, increasingly um, over the last kind of few years by operators, by investors, by corporate financiers to describe a whole manner of different hospitality concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, every man and his dog now has a experiential on their business plan. Mm-hmm. Inception was um, a kind of early pioneer of experiential, but what does what do you think that phrase actually means today? Well, I think as you know, we, we, we've said it in our mission statement from day one to create unique and memorable experiences. I think actually, you know, going to an average chain and just having a pizza or something is, you know, you know, isn't really much of an experience. Whereas going and having one in Bunga Bunga and, you know, an opera singer singing to you and getting up on the stage and karaoke with confetti cannons going around, it's, you know, that's an experience. So it, it's, it's creating a, an experience. I think for us, we like them to be you know, very immersive, to give people that escapism. I think especially in this day and age where there's so much doom and gloom, negativity and bad news, this gives people a nice breather of, of something different where they can, a different world they can be transported to. And I think we've, you know, we opened bars. I remember we did one, we did one experiment, which is we, we looked at all the bars that were a 10 minute walk away. And I printed off all the pictures and I stuck it onto a big piece of cardboard. And there were about 11 different bars. And I asked a few people, I said, what bar is that? And no one said that's 11 venues or that's several venues because they all looked exactly the same. They were, they were, they were buying the same furniture from the Andy Thornton catalogues. They were using the same tea light candles and holders uh, and serving glassware out of the same catalog. And I think very early on, our, our mantra was innovate, don't imitate, do something different. And if you stuck a picture of bars in the middle of that, it would ping out on the page. So I think it's, it's trying to you know, have our unique selling points, trying to think differently, do things differently and create something that's memorable for people. Um, and that people will travel to go to and feel they've, you know, they've, they've had a great time and, and it has been um, an experience. And, you know, we add to that by having, you know, more and more experiential sessions, you know, within the venues. So we, whether it's our gin making classes, our tipsy teas, um, whether it's our, you know, gin safaris, which are, you know, you're taken through the age of gin standing in your pith helmets. Um, to our new one, the Bootlegger Breakout, which is going to be launching at Cahoots, which is a escape room style experience that you then have a cocktail class. But but people love doing things like that. I think you know the, you know, the, the current consumer is a very much um, to do generation, not to have generation. I think the days of people obsessing about um, you know having a certain pair of shoes or handbag. Uh, are, are, are less important mm. to actually wanting to go and do things and, um, you know, and then probably to, to brag about them on social media. Mm. Yeah. So it's really about kind of activity, individual performance, so being involved in a venue and, and the visuals. They're kind of the key, key things. Yeah, I think, I think um, yeah, yeah, certainly our interiors are, are a big part of, 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 of how we create a unique, unique feeling space um, you know how the staff are and whether it's talking to sort of in Victorian tones at, at Mr. Fogg's or in 1940s and um, it's the products we sell and how we and how we serve them whether it's in a leaning tower of Pisa at Bunga Bunga or in a Vera Lynn or Churchill mug um, at Cahoots I think you know that everything looks different appealing isn't you know is an experience I mean I I always, you know, give the analogy um, at Maggie's, for example, that you know people sometimes say, "Well, you're selling a bottle of vodka for X hundred pounds, where you know this costs forty um, in a supermarket." But you know, one of the delivery options at Maggie's is it gets delivered in the Top Gun parade, where everyone comes out wearing the Top Gun visors. Yeah. You get given a, a Top Gun suit, aviators, and you know it's then poured into a big vessel. That's something you can't equate to a price in the supermarket because mm. it's something. And yes, of course, we're conscious that people like these experiences too now to be able to, you know, record them and, and share them. 
Cool. So um, we'll change the tone up a bit slightly and uh, move on to move on to COVID. So we're recording this conversation in early um, October 2020, um, only six months after the sector was forced to close due to COVID-19 and almost three months since the government has allowed the sector to reopen, albeit in a COVID safe and limited way. It's clearly been the worst crisis in the history of leisure and hospitality. Even World War II didn't force our pubs to close. We could spend the entire podcast talking about how you and the business have reacted. But I wanted to get a sense from you now of your kind of overall outlook um, and how you have gotten yourself through this this um, difficult period so far. You know, obviously, it's been incredibly difficult period. Um, I think, you know, we used to always look at the risks for our business like you always do. And I think the thing that used to worry us was the thought of a licensing, licensing incident at one of the venues and having a license curtailed through something that happened out of your control or... Um, you know, a downturn in, in the economy, uh, you know, which would have a slowing of trade, or even, um, you know, you know, uh, you know, God forbid, but a, a, a terrorist incident like they had in Borough. Now, those were the things that kept us up at night. Never did a pandemic register on the risk uh, factors that we faced, and um, you know, we'd had a great December, um, a pretty strong January, and it was really early February that we started to see some early. Uh, warning signs that we, you know, obviously we were seeing what was happening in China, and then um, we we started getting some cancellations of our corporate business companies that were travelling over and probably doing at daytime conferences, and then using the Mr. Fogg's venues or the Bunga Bunga venues for dinners and drinks in the evening, and those started to, to, to cancel, and then our consumer started behaving differently. Um, you know, sort of early March, and uh, when Boris got up on that Monday and said, um, you know, please don't go to bars and restaurants. At that point, we decided we had to close everything and it was then mandated on the Friday. Um, you know, then it was the full lockdown uh, for four months, really. Uh, and gradually, uh, we've been reopening over the summer and um, the final, well, two venues that can open, uh, Bunga Bunga Covent Garden and Mr. Fogg's Society of Exploration will be reopening um, in the coming, um, the coming weeks. Um, and then uh, Maggie's our nightclub, obviously, there's no clear signals of when that can reopen. Mm. But looking at, um, you know, where we are now, I mean, obviously, I think there was a real sense of optimism in the summer, um, as with Eat Out to Help Out and consumer confidence was gradually building. It now feels like having slowly rebuilt from one tsunami, we are facing other waves and you know, every week it's a different restriction, uh, whether it's the, the rule of six, um, or more damaging for us, uh, the 10 p.m. curfew. Um, talk about you know no households being to being able to mix, um, but every time one of these comes in, obviously it, it affects our trade in a negative way. I think the thing I take um, some comfort from is the demand is very much there, and people are wanting experiential venues and uh, more than ever. And um, it's just that you know our our spacing in the venues now at one meter plus means our capacity has been halved. No one's standing at the bar yeah. and the tables mean you get half the numbers. And now our trading uh, time or hours has been cut in half as well. So, you know, obviously it doesn't take a, a genius to work out that's going to severely limit what you can do. But um, I think we hope that, you know, that, that we have faith that as these restrictions are eased, whenever that may be, um, that we will be able to bounce back. And what's been the most, um, uh, I'm sure there've been a few, but what's been the most difficult decision that you've, you've had to make during this period? It's been a horrendously difficult period. Um, something I you know, never imagined at times. It just feels like a terrible nightmare, really. Um, but I think you know, we were in shock initially, to be honest with you, what was happening and the speed that it was happening. Um, you know, initially, it was just cash preservation, uh, getting liquidity into the business. Um, we waited and heard rumour about the furlough scheme before it was brought in and got as many of our staff on that as we could. But inevitably, we've had to make some people redundant and that um, is a horrible thing to have to do, um, especially when these are some of these people have been with us um, for years and years and it was through no fault of their own and they are great you know, what we call inceptionites, you know, part of the furniture. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we've just had to make quick, really, really difficult decisions. And, um, you know, it's something I never want to have to 
go through again. Um, and thinking kind of, you know, past COVID, what are the big kind of opportunities kind of coming out of all of this for, for Inception? I think my mind at the moment is really on survival right now. It's how we get through a winter when our trading hours have been halved and our capacities have been halved. Mm. But I think, look, I think beyond that, I have a lot of faith and belief in the sector. I think good businesses will uh, survive and prosper. I think that, you know, the consumer uh, will make even more considered choices about where they go to. And I think that there will be more of an availability of sites. Um, uh, And I do believe that that, that people will, you know, there's been a lot of talk about socialising is going to be over Zoom. Mm. Personal interaction, you know, beats meeting over Zoom all day long. Um, and one of the reasons I was keen to uh, to do this podcast with you in person and not um, over Zoom or Google Hangouts, because I think, you know, I, I've, I really feel like it's been overdone yeah. um, in, sure. in, in this last period. And I think people are craving to, to sit with friends and family uh, in the flesh. So I, I have real faith that hospitality will once again flourish. Um, we've got to get through this this transition period. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic about the future, the medium to long term. And I'm obviously concerned about the short term and just need to survive the transition. Really. Mm. Moving on to nightclubs in particular, which is one of the sectors which is still closed. And um, as you said previously, has at the moment has no kind of firm reopening date in mind. What do you think that the impact of COVID will be on the nightclub sector in, in the longer term? You know, if there are mass closures and a significant downsizing of late night sector, is this not just an acceleration of some of the trends that were already prevalent pre-COVID? I mean, are nightclubs as relevant now for today's 18 to 25 year olds as they were five, 10 years ago? I think very sadly, a lot of nightclubs won't reopen. You know, I, I, I haven't been advocating for nightclubs to reopen whilst the virus is still spreading. I think that it's very, very hard to run a, a nightclub socially distanced. What I do feel strongly is that if a government is going to mandate closure of a sector like nightclubs or theatres or sporting venues, that there should be better support um, for these sectors um, in order to reopen when the restrictions are removed. I mean, these are all viable businesses. They're all viable jobs, but only when they can actually legally operate. Clearly, they're not viable uh, when they're mandated to close. So. Um, I think, sadly, you know, a lot of nightclubs won't survive. And if we were a business of 11 nightclubs, nor would we. And we're lucky, lucky that you know, 10 out of our 11 venues are able to reopen currently, um, albeit in a more limited capacity. I think that nightclubs have been diminishing over the years, um, a certain type of nightclub. I think people have been going to late night bars. People have been used to go to clubs and meet people ultimately. And I think now they meet over uh, social media or Tinder and, and, mm. and then they... You know, they go to a bar. Um, yeah. I think they'll, you know, Maggie's was, was doing better than ever. And I think there is always a place for a, a more of an experienced night out. And I think, you know, people want to be able to dance. And I think, you know, the, the thought of never going to a place that people can dance and, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and have fun in that way, I, I, I can't see. So I think there'll always be room for them. But I think sadly, um, a lot won't reopen. And I, you know, I, I'm hearing worrying rumours about planning laws being relaxed to enable these to be converted to other use, which I really hope doesn't happen. And yeah, as we can see from, uh, you know, unfortunately people breaking you know, lockdown rules and you know, organizing you know, their own events, um, you know, clearly there's a desire there for, for people to, to dance, to socialize, have a good time. The, uh, yeah, I think there are, I think, you know, I think people will always find a way, um, sadly, and you know, that's one of the reasons I'm so cross about the 10 p.m. curfew, because we, you know, we. We could have opened all of our venues on the 4th of July. We only opened one because we waited for the guidance and we felt we could only get one properly COVID secure in time. Yeah. We've gradually phased them through the summer. Um, and now, you know, we are keeping keeping people spaced and ensuring temperature checks, which we've done from day one, a compulsory sanitization on the way in, um, all the staff wearing masks, uh, which we've done since day one, before it was compulsory. Yeah. And we're watching, you know, people pile out um, onto busy streets, onto full tubes. Um, and it's all of our hard work has really, you know, gone to waste. It, you know, it, it, it was a crazy um, idea, this. And I think, you know, the, the, uh, the government obviously have a balancing act and walk a tightrope between 
the health of individuals and the economy. And when a policy makes both a lot worse, it's clearly not a good one. Let's put COVID to one side and, and think about nicer things. So um, I hope you don't mind me saying you're now in your, your late 30s. And you're a family man with uh, with two young children and um, a dog, which is um, quite nicely um, uh, laid quietly on the floor here. Um, how do you handle the challenges of managing a business whilst looking after a family? Um, I mean, it can't be easy given the nature of the industry and the hours. Well, I think I'm lucky now that, you know, I'm, I'm working more daytime hours and, you know, our business, you know, having started very late night, actually operates, um, you know, most of, them, most of our venues operate from early afternoon or midday. Close at 10 o'clock now. Yeah, and they will close <laughs> at 10, exactly. Um, be back for 10 o'clock news. Um, but, so, you know, so it does mean I can be in our venues without having to have really late nights. And, you know, there is a great team who are more kind of based till the, to the late hours when we're allowed to trade till then. Um, I think, you know, it is, a, it is a tough industry in many ways. It's, I think for me, probably the hardest thing is, is the, the, the feeling of responsibility, um, both for our staff and our customers. And, um, you know, especially when alcohol is involved, you know, I think, you know, that's the thing I used to go, you know, to go to bed worrying about is, you know, you know, what's, what's going to happen? And is it, you know, is someone going to run into the street and get hit by a car and, you know, that you know that's the thing the stress of that and the, the feeling of responsibility i think is is, is the toughest aspect mm-hmm. um but you know my wife's incredibly supportive um and i think i get a good balance i think the last six months you know i've i've certainly experienced stress uh in a way that i've never have come close to before um and i think you know she's been amazing at, at, at kind of you know just reasserting my belief that there will be better days ahead uh, and one one day this period will be history and we'll talk about those awful that awful year 2020 <laughs> and, horrible and, and you know these weird words like social distancing furlough um all words that um, you know had no relevance this time yeah. last year i i hope when this disappears that those words disappear forever and yes, so do again. i and i hope chris witty is on strictly come dancing um or or in the jungle eating yeah. um kangaroos testicles with Antoinette. um so uh so what do you do to de-stress then um when you find yourself with a little bit of downtime do you read netflix um yeah I, you know i think uh, as you're, you're soon to find out, I think when you've got small children, uh, there isn't a lot of downtime. So uh, weekends are really uh, spent playing with them. And, you know, they're a million miles an hour from the moment they wake up at seven in the morning till when they uh, when they go to bed. So that's really the sort of, that's that's, that's really what weekends are all about. I, I mean, I used to read a lot, um, but that, <laughs> that doesn't really happen. I think, you know, in the evenings, um, uh, you know, I love to cook. Um, that I definitely find that something that helps yeah. me uh, kind of de-stress a bit because yeah. it's in my mind it's not on work it's on mm-hmm. um, how I'm messing up the chicken in front of me um, and you know I love love, love traveling uh, uh, normally um, that would certainly be be, be a big passion mm-hmm. of mine um, but uh, yeah I, I don't don't watch don't watch a, a lot of a lot of TV to be honest um, mm-hmm. I, I do always try and take an hour um, in the morning to walk the dog and quite often listen to a, to a podcast on that. Yeah. Although you would watch Chris Whitty on uh, Strictly Come Dancing. I definitely uh, would. I think we need to definitely would. Um, so uh, what, what's, the, what's the most fulfilling thing about um, working in hospitality? What do you love most about it? I think, it's, I, think I really realised um, during the four-month closure how much I loved it. And it's that sound of people having a great time. It's that sense of um, having an idea and seeing it become reality, creating an experience. Um, and there's a real buzz of that, looking around a room and people having, you know, enjoying time with friends and family. And and and, and I think also it's a sort of, it, it's quite it's quite addictive sort of opening venues and, and, and kind of, you know, I just love putting the interiors together and it encompasses a lot of what I love, you know, food, drink, travel, people, uh, property development you know there's it's exciting um and I, and I just love london and you know i think it's such an, an amazing city so i think hospitality is you know you work with some some really brilliant people too um and th- there's a real buzz about it um and you know as i said i'm, I'm sure it's a sector that that is going to recover and i think one silver lining of this 
period is people have, have realized how important it is, not just for the, you know, financial aspect and the huge contribution it makes to the economy, but for the social fabric mm. of how we live. I think uh, you know, a lot of people who don't work in hospitality really miss going to their local pub or restaurant. They become hubs of the community. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's one thing that's kind of come out of this crisis is the exposure that hospitality has received as a sector um, you know, in the media. And uh, uh, it's been highlighted as the employer, the contributor, um, to the social fabric of the nation that it is, um, uh, so you know, small silver lining. In terms of what's next post-COVID, uh, what's next for you? What's next for Inception? Um, obviously, the next few years planning out. I think you know, if I was just to pretend COVID hadn't happened, we were very much focused on opening more venues, both in London and possibly looking beyond. Again, in that mantra of a collection and not a chain, uh, creating new spin-offs of cahoots. We just opened our ticket hall and control room to join the, the underground station in Soho. Mm-hmm. We'd love to do more with that brand. Mr. Foggs has six different venues now. We'd love to open more. Um, and, you know, I, I think never say never to another Bunga Bunga, whether it's in London or beyond. But, you know, at the moment, I think we're taking each day as it comes and whatever challenge that throws up. And it's all about getting through this transition period and reassessing, dusting ourselves down and seeing where we are the mm-hmm. other side. And finally, Charlie, uh, can you tell us something that not many people know about you? I think it's probably how kind of hands-on I am with sort of decorating the venues. Um, I have a real love for installing all the antiques and pictures and things and sourcing them myself. Um, So I go to Kempton Market pretty much every second Tuesday, sometimes so early that it's still dark, I go with a torch. Um, And I genuinely can't stress how much I love that aspect it's literally like the night before Christmas as a kid that first installation day and I order all sorts of things and I order things on eBay and and occasionally I get it very wrong I always remember I um, was bragging in the office that I'd managed to buy a grandfather clock for uh, 20 pounds Um, and you know this was a beautiful clock that was just going to look amazing in the middle of the room at Mr Fox and uh, um, a week later my grandfather clock arrived and I kind of looking around because couldn't see where it was to see below on my desk, it was a doll's house miniature in a shoebox, and I hadn't checked the scale. I had, that's why I need Duncan for the practical side. Um, the most expensive doll's house clock. Well, yeah, apparently twenty pounds isn't bad for one, but actually yeah, it sits on a shelf. But but no, you know that that is an aspect, and and actually you know that's for me just just kind of getting lost in an antiques market or a, or a fair like Kempton is. You know, I'm I'm, I'm never happier. Uh, work-wise than doing that. Do you have a garage at home full of paraphernalia from uh, various areas? Um, I, I have to kind of keep, you know, my wife thinks I'm, I'm I'm throwing stuff away, but I keep sticking stuff in the loft. I'm a bit of a hoarder and yeah. uh, we do have a storage container filled with various artefacts which will be going into the next Mr. Fogg's whenever that may be. Nice. Well, I can't wait to visit when it opens. Um, Charlie, thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thank you, Adam. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to any of our channels, drop us a line or follow Tamriel Capital on LinkedIn, where you can carry on the conversation and engage on all things leisure, hospitality, wellness, consumer and challenger. Thanks for listening.